0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: For a thousand years in the West, Christianity existed and in some ways flourished under a system in which the church was the culture. Language, economics, personal morality, political life, The Christian Church was at the center of everything. For the last 200 years, however, the Church and the Christian faith have been gradually pushed to one side of the culture. The Christian view of man, God, and morality has become just one voice among many. In response, some have argued that we should try to get back to Christendom. Others have sought to reinstitute the Mosaic civil laws and the Mosaic theocracy, and still others have argued that Christians can have no role in civil society. There is an alternative, however, to these approaches. The 16th and 17th century Protestant reformers were children of Christendom, but the Reformation brought about a new relationship between church and state and sowed the seeds of a different way of relating Christianity to culture, one that had existed among the early fathers before. Christendom. They argued that we are citizens of two spheres or kingdoms simultaneously, that God exercises his sovereignty in these two spheres in distinct ways. They also taught the existence of a kind of law revealed by God and accessible to all, believer and non believer. They called it the law of nature or the moral law. Here to talk with us about this way of relating Christ to culture is the Jonas Robesher Professor of Law, Alonzo L. McDonald Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University in Atlanta, John Whitty, Jr. He's one of the world's leading scholars of this field. He is the author of more than 180 journal articles and 23 books, including God's Joust, God's Justice, Law and Religion, in the Western tradition. This title is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu/slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome to Office Hours.
2: Thanks so much. It's good to be
1: here. In the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, it was common for theologians and political theorists and others to talk about natural law or the law of nature, and by which I mean divinely revealed norms for civil life embedded in creation, and universally accessible. My perception is that concept fell on hard times, but it seems to be making something of a comeback. If that's so, what happened to the idea? Why did it lose traction?
2: I think you uh, described the idea exactly right. Um, It's not only amongst theologians, but also jurists and ethicists and political theorists who use natural law in the way that you describe it. Interestingly, what happened in the later 19th and the early 20th century is the rise of a a neo-Calvinist or a a resurgence of Reformation ideas associated especially with uh, Abraham Kuiper and his successor Hermann Deuweird and in Switzerland with Karl Barth. And the very, very strong emphasis upon a cruciform understanding of the faith and the emphasis upon the fall – and that nature unredeemed, natural law, natural theology, natural rights—anything uh, that's viewed without the mediating understanding of the gospel and without the mediating inspiration and imitation of Christ—I uh, was viewed as suspect. And one of the interesting. Emergences from the 1920s to the 1950s is a set of of very learned theologians and ethicists who are schooled on the understanding that natural law is a suspect category and that natural rights and natural theology and many other attendant understandings of a a form of knowledge or a form of reasoning or a form of, of ethical living that did not explicitly bracket itself with a cruciform understanding was dangerous. And that increasingly became associated with a Catholic-Protestant divide as well. Catholics do natural law, Protestants do the Bible. Catholics do reason uh, without the inspiration of revelation, Protestants do their ethics in imitation of Christ and an emulation of, of gospel norms. And with that generation or two of scholars, people began to read the tradition very selectively and began to omit the sections of Calvin, of Luther, of Bootser, of Bullinger, and all the greats from the 17th to the 19th century that worked very explicitly with natural law categorization in their work, especially as they are trying to translate enduring biblical teachings into new understandings of law, politics, and society, and lifted up instead the liturgical, the catechetical the more explicitly uh, church life parts uh, of their theology. Happily, in the late 20th and early 21st century, there's been a resurgence of interest in those historical sources, first retrieving their wisdom of the range of Protestant and parallel Catholic theologians and philosophers and jurists who work with natural law understandings and secondly reconstructing their teachings for a 21st century church in 21st century society now much more pluralistic globalized in need of or sturdy casuistic techniques that natural law theory historically afforded
1: That gets me exactly where I wanted to go next, and that's a little biography by way of preface for this question. As a university student in a state university in the late 70s and early 80s, political science student as it happens, one of my profs told me after class that Christians – actually, he said you, meaning I as a Christian – have no place in public life. And that if I wanted to be active in public life as a Christian, I should leave the country and go to some place where they had a state church. Was he right?
2: I don't want to date you as to when you were in college, and I will uh, spare the reader from any such inquiry. But it's certainly from the 1950s to the 1980s. Alongside the theological uh, and ethical predisposition against natural law amongst Christian theologians, there was at the same time the rise of this positivist paradigm in secular learning and secular universities, universities that didn't have an explicit theological foundation or orientation. And the thought was, with the rise of Enlightenment reason and science, uh, with a growing understanding of technology, that religion, especially Christianity that's historically dominated American education, will, will die a slow and natural and, for most people's view, a happy death. And that Christians and other people of of overt confessional faith who still thought they could work with their traditional theocratic aspirations would simply find themselves anachronisms. And that understanding was very common in the universities in the mid-20th century uh, and continued into the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s in many places, including in law schools where I spend most of my professional life. Um, The thought is, is that we simply don't need religion anymore. Uh, And Christianity in particular, with all of its imperial predensions, with all of its patriarchal zeal, with all of its uh, skeletons in the closet, and unfortunately stacked up uh, in the fields through crusades and inquisitions and pogroms and religious wars, in the eyes of many, would have to be simply excised from serious academic discussion. That view is beginning to change. It's still not changed entirely, but it's beginning to change in this (laughs) irony of postmodernism where letting a thousand flowers bloom, including religious flowers, is perfectly acceptable epistemologically, and letting religious voices be part of a cacophony of different voices that seriously engage public and policy and other kinds of conversations is useful. And that Christianity now, in this postmodern potpourri, may have something useful to say. And if Christians can say it with zeal and with with an apparatus that's convincing to those that don't share their theological premises – All the better. And that puts your two questions together because natural law is becoming increasingly the big umbrella for a lot of different strategies of engagement with political and social and legal issues that Christians and other people of serious faith are beginning to be in conversation with folk that don't come with any overt confessional
1: starting point. From Westminster Seminary, California. How does natural law in civil life give us a way by which to address social issues?
2: Well, first of all, natural law is a a very plastic term, so we've got to be careful about how we're using it. Um, I use it in part as a way of thinking about what human nature needs. It's the nature of humanity, the nature of humans as individuals, the nature of humans in society, the nature of humans as reproductive creatures that have certain tendencies, inclinations, and needs that can be met. Talking about those in terms that are useful for the so-called species is one way of thinking about natural law that way is widely shared in the population today. We now talk about species specific needs. We talk about reproductive strategies through pair bonding. We talk about the importance of of solidarity between the generations. We talk about the importance of the environment as a as a common place that we inhabit. Uh, You could talk about those in terms of of, uh, the Genesis 1 and 2 stories about monogamy. We can talk about those in the sense of stewardship of the earth and the like. We can talk about them in natural order or creation order terms. But people are also talking about them in in natural law terms in the sense of what does human nature need. A second way that natural law gets used and and where it's useful for these kind of conversations is making arguments about what is – common amongst different people of a variety of times and a variety of cultures? What have humans over time and as communities developed in their normative structures? And it's interesting if you think about natural law in that way as a demonstration of the law written in the hearts and minds of all persons that then come and inform their actions. If you look across time, across cultures, look throughout history, what's interesting? Number one, we all have basic understandings of responsibility, of fault, of accountability, of restitution, of restoration. We all have understandings of promise and of reliance and expectation uh, and reward and damages that result from their breach. We all have understandings of marriage, family, sexuality, the need for the domestic sphere with the attachment and merger of lives of persons, of properties, of families, of lineages that emerge in that. We all have understandings of the cultic life, that we need to have a set of of ways by which we recognize something transcendent, be that The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, be that Allah, be that whatever. But there's something transcendent that every community that's serious about their civilizational identity spends time making room for. You can go through the longer and longer list to demonstrate that natural law is a demonstration of what humans in their natural communal needs have. Uh, natural law means that as well. And the third way it gets used, and this is the more specific way that Christians find it particularly useful, is it's a framework for moral casuistry, uh, which we – starting with the Decalogue, starting with the Noahide law, starting with an understanding of what covenant's about, reasoning through toward a, a given understanding of what our responsibility is as persons or as communities, as church members or as churches qua churches. And if you think about the fundamentals of faith, the freedom of family, and the rights that attach thereto, you can do an awful lot of really powerful work with those starting premises, drawing on the tradition, but casting the arguments in terms that are of provenance for people that don't necessarily
1: share your faith. You're listening to Office Hours, and I'm Scott Clark. We're talking with John Witte Jr. about the role of religion in public life. When we come back, John, I want you to answer this question. Why don't we want the state determining what it is people should believe and how they should practice their religion.
0: In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California. Where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Because it's not the state's jurisdiction, it's God's
2: jurisdiction. Uh, And the Constitution says so, interestingly, in the United States and many countries around the world, including those that you mentioned in Egypt, Indonesia, Jordan, and elsewhere, are striving for the same kind of democratic freedom. The state's limited in its competence, uh, just as the church is limited in its competence, and just as um, the family is limited in its competence. Uh, To put it in traditional Kuyperian or social sphere theory, every one of these spheres has a core calling that it needs to discharge on behalf of the common good or the common weal, uh, and that none of them can intrude upon the core calling of the other. And none of them can certainly intrude upon the fundamental sovereignty of God. Matters of faith can be facilitated, encouraged, celebrated, exercised in these different communities. But matters of faith, first and foremost, are the relationship between the individual believer and that believer's God. And no state, no church, and no family can intrude upon that fundamental freedom. And certainly the state, which has reserved to it the coercive power of the sword, uh, has any business involving itself uh, in coercing its members to take up a given particular form of faith, to forgo another form of faith, or to attach disproportionate rewards or burdens uh, on the faith choices made by any individual. We've learned that the hard way in the Western Christian tradition. Uh, after the 5th century, I think we drew two a lessons uh, in the age of Constantine, as we call it, from the Scripture to say, well, it's okay to compel people to come to the marriage feast. It's okay to induce people to be coerced into baptism, to kidnap their children, and to educate them in the Christian faith. In my view, those were sad stories in the history of the tradition when Communities or authorities arrogated to themselves power that didn't lie with them. Now, that said, the state has to be in the business of of protecting the religious freedom and encouraging, facilitating that of all peaceable believers. And if that's disproportionately Christians or Jews or Muslims in a given polity, uh, so be it as a matter of, of politics. That is, the state can organize communities into religious incorporations. It can give them land use uh, privileges to build worship centers. Uh, it can provide opportunities for them to be exempt to enjoy the fundamental expressions of their faith through dress or through religious worship or through cultic activities that, are, again, are peaceable. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the state doing that for all peaceable believers, including Christians. And there has been nothing, nothing wrong with the church receiving the largest of that benefit in the history of America because it was the disproportionately largest community. It's when the state goes beyond accommodating, exempting, allowing for these faiths to flourish that the state begins to trespass upon, number one, theologically, God's sovereignty, and number two, uh, much more narrowly, the Constitution and its Establishment Clause.
1: You've pointed out in some of your writing, and anyone can see some evidence of this just by looking around, people, at least some people, are losing confidence, aren't they, in the correctness of the American experiment. There are some people who are saying the First Amendment was a mistake, and there are other people from a very different point of view uh, who look back somewhat longingly at the Constantinian experiment or at Christendom and would like to go back to that. How do you answer both sets of critics of the American experiment?
2: The American experiment is just that. It's an experiment and it's ongoing and remains from the 1789 ratification or creation of the First Amendment till the latest machinations by the Supreme Court, an ongoing exercise. But some of the core ingredients of that exercise and parameters of what's appropriate or inappropriate, I think were defined very nicely by the founding fathers in the 18th century – Part as acts of genius, part of as culminations of, of centuries of casuistry and political experimentation that had gone on elsewhere in the West, the founders who are diverse, they're not just one brand of Christians, they're Puritans, they're evangelicals, they're republicans, they're enlightenment libertarians. There are a variety of different walks of life represented amongst the founders. The founders came to the conclusion that to create true religious freedom requires maintenance of six fundamental principles. Number one, liberty of conscience. Everybody having the freedom to choose, to change, to reject religion. Number two, freedom of exercise. Uh, The right to express in word, in sacrament, in deed, in organizational structure, in worship pattern, in literature, the choices of conscience they made. Number three, religious pluralism. That is, it's good to have a multitude of faiths in the community in part because a variety of different forms of faith keep the others honest one forms as jefferson says a sensor morum over the other keeps a check and a balance upon monopolistic instincts that one would have and keeps a check against lethargy sloppiness weakness of the faith supine dependence upon the state fourth religious equality that the state's responsibility First and foremost is to recognize that all faiths that are peaceable are equal. You can't attach distinctive benefits to one form of faith in order to induce citizens disproportionately to choose that faith over another. Every faith has to win on its own word and its own merits. Fifth, an understanding of separation of the institutions and offices of church and state. No clergyman can dictate the inner workings of the state And no politician can dictate the inner workings of the church. Uh, That sphere sovereignty idea that we talked about a few minutes ago is at work right in that understanding of separation of church and state. And there are a group of corporate free exercise rights or religious group rights that attach to the church. And then finally at the national level, no established religion. You can't have one form of faith that the state says, that's the one that we're supporting. No other one counts or every other one is a secondary form of faith. So I I think that foundational set of principles that the Founding Fathers put in place is a framework that has worked. It's been in place for 220-odd years. How it's been interpreted is, is another thing. But it has set the ground rules for a position between the two extremes that you mentioned, theocratic pretenses of various stripes going back to Constantine or, at the same time, simple abnegation of all religion and making religion just, at best, a private thing to be indulged uh,
1: by the aged. You're listening to
0: Office Hours hours
1: from Westminster Seminary, California. In your textbook, Religion and the Constitutional Experiment, you survey the most recent Supreme Court cases touching religious liberty. And you write about the, quote, shifting jurisprudence and the substantial weakening of the First Amendment religious clauses. And you point to... A couple of cases, among others, from the 1940s Cantwell versus Connecticut and uh, Everson versus the Board of Education, I think, one in 1940, the other in 1947. What happened in the 40s? Why did jurisprudence shift from the states to the courts? And how is jurisprudence shifting now? And how does that relate to the weakening of First Amendment protections?
2: Uh, It's a big story. In the 1940s, for the first time in the history of the First Amendment, the federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, took over jurisdiction, principal jurisdiction over the American experiment. From 1791, when the First Amendment uh, religion clauses were ratified, until 1940, not once did the U.S. Supreme Court find a violation of either the Free Exercise Clause or the Establishment Clause. Most religious liberty questions were left to the states, and most of the states dealt with those issues per their own state constitutions, some of which paralleled the First Amendment, some of which were more or less protective than the First Amendment, depending upon the state. In the 1940s, the Supreme Court took over for a number of reasons. Number one, many other areas of human rights were being subject now to federal court jurisdiction, and... Free speech clause, free, free press clause, various criminal procedural protections, civil procedural protections. Uh, the religion clauses were simply part of a general what we call incorporation act in the 1920s through 1960s where it was decided that the best way to read the due process clause of the 14th Amendment was to read into it the various guarantees that were stipulated elsewhere in the Constitution, especially the Bill of Rights. Secondly, but more importantly, the – 1940s, we, for the first time, saw what local bigotry could do. We had just stared into Hitler's death camps. We had just stared into Stalin's gulags. We had seen what local communities without broader checks, let alone universal checks, could do with cherished freedoms, even in sophisticated cultures like Nazi Germany uh, and Stalinist Russia. And the fear That local prejudice, which was manifesting itself in a variety of different places in the 1930s and the early 1940s in the United States against Jews, against African-Americans, against other minorities, uh, was simply a step along the way to the same unchecked bigotry that obtained uh, in those two unfortunate situations in Western Europe and in the Soviet Union. And we were not going to allow that to happen in the United States. Third... We're in the middle of national solidarity and all kinds of things. We'd just been through the Depression and created the New Deal State. We had just started the Cold War and needed national solidarity on fundamental matters. All those reasons together converge in the 1940s to say we need to make real what Roosevelt had called for the world to make real, which is let's take care of fundamentals, universal rights, and freedom of faith – was one of the four freedoms that Roosevelt proclaimed to be indispensable to the protection of humanity everywhere. And so the incorporation of the religion clauses in the 1940s and the Cantwell and Everson cases that you mentioned – was part of this exercise of creating a certain set of universal, in this case national, religious and other fundamental rights that could not be trespassed under any circumstance by any state and local government. And the federal courts, amplified in part by congressional legislation, would step in in the event of their breach at the local level and call those local authorities to to task. For the next 50 years, That was the driving animus of the creation of modern First Amendment jurisprudence. In the 1990s and in the 2000s, we have slowly relaxed from that position with the consequent weakening of the free exercise and the establishment clause, weakening in the sense that traditionally from 1940 to 1990, one could be guaranteed under the free exercise clause what we call strict scrutiny, a law locally challenged would have to meet a very, very tough standard of review before the state would be upheld or the local government would be upheld in its purported trespass upon a free exercise interest. After 1990, neutral generally applicable laws were fine. Likewise in the Establishment Clause area, neutral laws that happened to provide ample benefits to one particular religion alone as a simply a natural consequence of that legislation in action was considered to be perfectly appropriate. Now. The Supreme Court was doing this in part as a broader neo-federalist revolution. A lot of things were being pushed back to state and local governments. The Supreme Court was also doing this in a, in a recognition that in the natural ebb and flow or pendular swing of constitutionalism, the time had come to return some of these questions back to state and local governments. The risk of a Nazi Germany in the United States, uh, the necessity for national solidarity over fundamental issues during a Cold War – Uh, or a a budding New Deal state had relaxed considerably in the 1980s and 1990s. Those things were still important. But the thought was the federal courts had done what was necessary to establish non-negotiables in the religious freedom area. And now allowing for local experimentation on religious freedom to emerge again would be healthy. Now, yes, it is healthy in one sense. But unfortunately, in the last 15 years, especially post 9-11, we're starting to see local bigotry again, and we're starting to see local communities begin to wreak their vengeance now against the new minority. It's not the Jews anymore, it's the Muslims, uh, and the Scientologists, and the Native American Indians, and the Wiccans, and a few other groups that we now have as our new targets of suspicion. And the interesting problem with having indulged in this creation of a half-century of universal jurisprudence is that religious freedom in the United States is increasingly becoming a function of geography. What interstate exit you take dictates the amount of religious freedom that you're going to get. And that sounds kind of academic for conventional Christians like you and me. Ask a Scientologist, ask a Muslim, ask an Orthodox Jew, ask a Rastafarian, ask a Zoroastrian. And you suddenly begin to realize Do we really want to have religious freedom left vulnerable to local contingencies. There's good in that in the sense that it allows for pockets of different religions to grow. The risk of it is is that you increasingly make religious freedom balkanized and create these communities of growing, not theocracy, but at least growing appetite for a monopolistic way. That, in my view, is dangerous.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.